What economic and other instruments were used by Western powers to destabilize and ultimately break up Yugoslavia? Were war crimes committed by Canada and other NATO powers during the 78-day bombing campaign against Yugoslavia in 1999? What new and terrifying precedent was set by NATO and its so-called humanitarian intervention on the Balkan state? Is an independent Kosovo serving the interests of its residents or of foreign Western powers? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we bust some of the myths around the historically significant but rarely discussed war on Yugoslavia, which began 20 years ago this week. Our guests include Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization, Zivadin Jovanovic, former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, James Bissett, a former ambassador to Yugoslavia and outspoken critic of the war, and Scott Taylor, journalist, war correspondent, and publisher-editor of Esprit de Corps magazine. On this week's program, the war on Yugoslavia 20 years later, NATO's first humanitarian war. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 22, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The coup against Venezuela has failed because the mass majority of people in Venezuela support the government and want to defend and continue to extend the gains they have made in the 20 years of the Bolivarian revolutionary process. What are some of these gains? By redirecting Venezuela's wealth from the pockets of international corporations and the wealthiest Venezuelans into social programs, the Bolivarian revolutionary process has brought millions of people out of extreme poverty. There have been remarkable gains in housing, healthcare, and education, including the eradication of illiteracy and the Great Housing Mission, or GMVV, which has constructed and delivered 2.5 million homes to Venezuela's poorest and most marginalized people since 2011. That comes from the article, Huge Defeat for Imperialists, the U.S. Broke Its Teeth in Venezuela by Alison Bodine, posted March 21st, originally appearing at the site firethistime.net. Special operations forces deployed across the globe in almost every country you can imagine can help initiate, maintain, and perpetuate conflict as long as the United States stays in a position of relatively unrivaled power in the world. The U.S. military-industrial complex does not desire large, winnable wars, but low-intensity conflicts that last as long as possible. That is how the system retains power, maintains profits, and remains relevant. A strengthened SOCOM deployed across the planet establishing relationships with the foreign militaries of most of the world's nations and stationed in an ever-growing number of U.S. embassies is a dream come true for the deep state. 
There is little chance that SOCOM will reverse its course of expansion and accumulation of power at the expense of U.S. national security any time in the immediate future. That comes from the article under the headline video, The Expanding Global Footprint of U.S. Special Operations, posted March 21st, originally published at South Front. The commission warns that above all, it is necessary to, quote, safeguard the critical digital infrastructures from the potentially serious threats to security, unquote, posed by the 5G networks furnished by Chinese companies like Huawei and banned by the United States. The European Commission faithfully echoes the U.S. warning to its allies. The supreme allied commander in Europe, U.S. General Scaparotti, specified that these fifth-generation ultra-rapid mobile networks will play an increasingly important role in the war-making capacities of NATO. Consequently, no amateurism by the Allies will be allowed. All this confirms the influence brought to bear by the American Party, a powerful transversal camp which is orienting the policies of the EU along the strategic lines of the USA and NATO. By creating the false image of a dangerous Russia and China, the institutions of the European Union are preparing public opinion to accept what the United States are now preparing for the quote-unquote defense of Europe. That comes from the article, The American Party Within the Institutions of the European Union, by Manlio Dinucci, posted March 21st, translated by Pete Kimberley, originally published at Il Manifesto. All the trends suggest that by mid-century or even sooner, China will have eclipsed the U.S. to become a global leader in advanced technologies that will greatly enhance its economy. This undermining of American hegemony over the global economy obviously has serious geopolitical consequences as the U.S. will not allow this to happen without a struggle. It remains to be seen whether this intensified rivalry remains contained to the economic sphere or whether it may escalate to military warfare. The next global recession that comes closer every day will undoubtedly exacerbate U.S.-China relations and may well push military and geopolitical tensions to breaking point. After all, warfare and foreign policy are merely a continuation of domestic politics and economics by other means. That comes from the article China-U.S. Relations, From Trade War to Hot War by Dr. Leon Trussell, posted March 20th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. March 24, 2019 marks the 20th anniversary of the start of NATO's bombing campaign against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. This was the first time the North Atlantic Treaty Organization had waged a major military operation against a sovereign country without the approval of the UN Security Council. The bombing campaign lasted 78 days. The aggression was supposedly waged in the name of saving ethnic Albanians from persecution by the Serb-dominated Yugoslavian government. The analysts appearing on this week's program will present a different interpretation of events, suggesting the aims had more to do with advancing the economic and military interests of the U.S. and its NATO allies in the post-Cold War era than any concern for human rights. We begin this 20-year anniversary retrospective with Professor Michel Chosodovsky. Professor Chostovsky is, of course, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Ottawa, founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization in Montreal, and editor of Global Research. 
Here he is putting his thoughts about the 1999 war within a geopolitical and historical context. Um, I think it's important to understand that there, there were three components to the destabilization of Yugoslavia. One is economic warfare, which started in the early 80s, the, the IMF World Bank reforms, ultimately leading to the demise of the industrial sector. The second are was the insurgencies, and these insurgencies were initially were in Bosnia as well as in, in Kosovo. And in that context, you also had, a, you had Islamic insurgencies, because Al-Qaeda was affiliated both affiliated and supportive of the Bosnian Muslim army and subsequently the Kosovo Liberation Army in Kosovo. And the third element, of course, is, is, the, is military intervention, di- direct military intervention, which uh, occurred in March uh, 1999. Uh, the early 80s are marked by actions by the World Bank and the IMF, which essentially consist in uh, imposing the standard uh, economic medicine on Yugoslavia, which I should mention in the course of, the, of post-war history was a very successful um, market economy, I should say socialist market economy with high rates of growth, uh, a welfare state, uh, universal health coverage, uh, and uh, high levels of literacy. Uh, and the turning point is the early 80s. Uh, where the standard of living starts to collapse under the brunt of, of these reforms. And then in the later, in the latter part of the 80s, the World Bank implements what, what in, in essence was a bankruptcy program. It, it's a program which essentially phases out uh, the industrial sector and obliges the, the manufacturing base of the country to declare bankruptcy. Uh, I won't get into the details, but that is really very, very important. And then there's another uh, watershed date, which is crucial, and that's January 1, 1990, when the, the IMF, supported by Western creditors, um, freezes the transfer payments from the Belgrade government to the governments of the, the state governments, the republics plus the autonomous provinces. Uh, including Kosovo. And what that does, essentially, it breaks the federation. You, you, we have it in Canada, federal provincial transfers. So what happened on, on January 1st, 1990, is crucial because it breaks the whole structure of the federation, and ultimately it leaves the, the republics of the federation to their, own, to their own devices. And that was the trigger mechanism which which subsequently led to partition. But I should mention that in 1984, and we're under the Reagan administration, there was a secret document entitled NSDD 133, Secret and Sensitive, uh, which um, essentially um, points to the need on the part of of the U.S. administration to carve up Yugoslavia 
into a number of small proxy states. That's a 1984 document. That's the 1984 document, National Security Decision Directive 133, entitled U.S. Policy Towards Yugoslavia. It was declassified. And what it does is sets the foreign policy framework for the destabilization of Yugoslavia's model of, of uh, market socialism and the establishment of a U.S. sphere of influence in Southeast Eastern Europe. And then eventually, of course, that led, in fact, to the establishment of, a, of one of uh, America's largest uh, military bases in Kosovo, which is called Tambonsteel. That was Professor Michel Chosodovsky, award-winning author and founder-director of the Center for Research on Globalization. In 2014, Michel Chosodovsky was awarded the Gold Medal for Merit of the Republic of Serbia for his writings on NATO's war of aggression against Yugoslavia. He recently reposted his May 1999 analysis of the conflict. It can be found under the headline, 20 years ago, NATO's war of aggression against Yugoslavia. Who are the war criminals? Zividin Jovanovic is president of the Belgrade Forum for a World of Equals, a nonprofit organization which is a member of the World Peace Council and which supports world peace and non-interventionism. Mr. Jovanovic served as Yugoslavia's federal minister of foreign affairs from 1998 to 2000, including the period of NATO's aerial assault on the country. The Global Research News Hour reached out to him recently to get his perspective on the war and the operations leading up to it. Zividin Jovanovic, uh, I want to ask you first of all, uh, there was, uh, before the war, the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, there was a general undermining of Yugoslavian sovereignty. Uh, and, and I was wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that you saw Western forces begin to destabilize your country from within. Yes. Uh, the Western countries... Uh have been uh, long uh, involved in destabilizing uh, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And uh, one uh, direction was uh, to uh, finance, arm, uh, and uh, organize uh, the terrorist uh, organization uh, in Kosovo and Metohia, Serbian southern province. Uh, it was uh, so uh, imp so serious uh, destabilization that it uh, has come to the UN Security Council table, and uh, Security Council has has been passing several uh, resolutions, all of them um, demanding uh, uh, stop uh, to armament training organization and financing of uh, terrorists uh, in Kosovo and Metohia. But at the same time, uh, uh, secret services of Western countries um, uh, on the spot have been uh, uh, doing just the opposite, uh, continuing uh, regardless to the, uh, to the uh, UN Security Council decisions. So um, thus uh, they prepared the uprising uh, of uh, terrorism uh, in Kosovo and Metohia in the uh, spring and in the uh, uh, summer of uh, 1998. Uh, this 
uh, led to uh, various uh, pressures and blackmail of the Serbian and Yugoslav government from the West uh, because apparently uh, the government uh, used uh, uh, excessive force to uh, neutralize terrorism. And uh, uh, such uh, demands uh, were coming exactly from, from those countries which uh, uh, had a record of uh, using enormous military power uh, all around the, the globe. Uh, there were meetings between leaders of Serbia and leaders uh, of uh, Albanian uh, national community in Kosovo and Metohija. Uh, they agreed uh, on a number of occasions uh, to uh, stop terrorism and uh, uh, to uh, bring about a peaceful uh, solution for the status of Kosovo and Metohija within Serbia. This uh, was not respected, and uh, future negotiations were refused by the leaders of uh, Albanian community in Kosovo and Metohija. And finally, um, in, uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, 1999, uh, 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 there were negotiations in Rambouillet, uh, and uh, uh, there was an uh, openness on the Yugoslav side, on the Serbian side, to reach a peaceful political agreement. However, uh, the, the, the Albanian leaders in uh, Rambouillet in France uh, were demanding only secession. Uh, uh, nothing uh, uh, else they uh, would accept, uh, only uh, the, to, to secede from Serbia. And uh, not uh, having uh, the referendum uh, in the whole of Serbia, but they would uh, insist uh, only on uh, decision uh, in, uh, in the provincial, on the provincial level. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the uh, representative of United States who were in Rambouillet, uh, they presented the so-called Rambouillet uh, document uh, in the final stage of negotiations demanding that Serbia, Yugoslavia accept occupation of the whole country and capitulation that uh, uh, American NATO troops could be stationed uh, all over Yugoslavia and without any responsibility, uh, be it administrative, be it uh, civil or even criminal uh, responsibility. And uh, this meant uh, really uh, capitulation, which was not um, uh, acceptable. Uh, Yugoslav-Serbian delegation in Rambouillet accepted all political provisions but did not accept parts of that document uh, related to military occupation. Those were parts 2, 5, and 7. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, led to, uh, to uh, this was uh, the, the reason that uh, the, the uh, NATO advanced 
to um, bomb, uh, to, uh, to issue um, act order for initiation of military intervention, of the aggression. Uh, well, uh, they then staged a so-called um, massacre of civilians in the place uh, of Ratchak in Kostomokia, uh, while it was uh, one legitimate um, uh, anti-terrorist action of um, Serbian security forces. You're referring to the uh, you're referring to the Ratchak, what's called the Ratchak massacre in January of '99. Yes, Ratchak massacre in January that was um, uh, uh, qualified by American ambassador uh, William Walker, uh, a person who had experience uh, uh, in supporting Contras in Latin America, in Nicaragua, and the other. Uh, places in, in Latin America. He was nominated uh, to be head of uh, OEC uh, verification mission, but actually it turned to be a mission only for preparing uh, uh, NATO aggression, NATO military attack on Yugoslavia. Okay. He was saying to his uh, collaborators, to his assistants, uh, uh, any price uh, should be paid uh, to, stash, to, to uh, station uh, NATO troops in Kosovo and Metohia. And uh, this was the technology which led to uh, the NATO aggression of uh, uh, March the 24, 1999. Could you remind us of some of the war crimes that were committed against the civilian population during the bombing campaign? Of course. Uh, first of all, we, we should uh, recall that uh, about 4,000 of uh, people were killed, and uh, out of 4,000 killed, only 1,000 were military and security uh, forces members. Uh, all the rest were civilians. So 6,000 of uh, civilians were uh, seriously wounded, um, uh, about 80, uh, not about exactly 87 children were killed uh, during the aggression to compel uh, the government of Serbia and of Yugoslavia uh, to accept uh, occupation. They were, uh, they were indiscriminately bombing and destroying civilian infrastructure, bridges, uh, factories, schools, um, kindergartens, uh, hospitals, even uh, the, 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 the children's hospitals and so on all over. They were also hitting at the historic monuments. So these were um, uh, just some of the crimes. And the crime in that general crime of aggression was to you uh, that they used um, uh, uh, they used missiles with depleted uranium, uh, about 15 to 20 tons of um, missiles with depleted uranium were um, uh, thrown indiscriminately all over uh, Serbia. They, they were using so-called cluster bombs. Uh, they were using uh, um, graphite bombs to destroy uh, electric stations and transformers and uh, uh, transport, electric transport lines. 
and uh, uh, they, they, uh, they were leaving hospital schools and uh, uh, all civilian um, establishments without electricity, meaning without refrigerations and so on. So it was uh, really um, un, uh, uh, anti-human. Uh, it was uh, very uh, uh, indiscriminate uh, way of destruction and sowing death all over. So we uh, are now are marking 20th anniversary of the aggression, but we are faced and we will, will for uh, an uh, limited period of uh, future time be faced with uh, consequences. Uh, I would also say these consequences, physical and chemical consequences, um, are visible. Even today in Belgrade streets, if you go uh, uh, city, city center, if you walk down, you will see uh, high buildings in ruins uh, uh, reminding uh, on NATO um, uh, crimes, uh, but uh, we uh, we uh, do not speak uh, a lot about consequences for the European and world order of the consequences that aggression um, uh, made to the system of United Nations, uh, because breaking the the. Uh, basic principles of UN Charter, basic principles of international law, uh, meant that uh, bombs fallen in Serbia were actually uh, putting into pieces the UN Charter, the Helsinki uh, final document on security and cooperation in Europe, the many agreements um, reached uh, during and after the Second World War, including Potsdam, Tehran, Yalta, and the other agreements which uh, represented the basis for UN Charter. This um, uh, war in uh, 1999, which uh, was uh, prolonged for 78 days, uh, was not a local little war. It was a, a war of global consequences, of global uh, objectives. And uh, uh, it was only excuse to attack small um, uh, country like Serbia, Yugoslavia. Uh, but the real uh, objective was uh, starting preparation for the war against Russia. Mr. Yovanovitch? Sorry. Starting uh, uh, implementation, practical implementation of the strategy of expansion toward the East, as they said in April 1999 at the uh, NATO summit in Washington. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, we should be really sober and should be um, uh, wise enough uh, to see that there is need to reconsider <coughs> all uh, what was uh, what was um, thrown to the Western and the world public as a justification for the uh, aggression of NATO on Yugoslavia in 1999. There was no humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, if there were sufferings, they started with the first bombs fallen uh, on Serbia. And if there was an exodus of um, refugees, it started uh, really after the 
4th of March in 1999. Okay, Mr. Yovanovitch? uh, It was merely a cover to hide uh, this egoistic, uh, this this, uh, domination-motivated NATO aggression. The the essence was uh, to show uh, uh, in practice uh, what will happen to anybody who tries to resist uh, NATO, who tries to be independent. Okay. And I think uh, more and more uh, people, more and more scientists, public figures, uh, including some leaders of some NATO member countries, uh, recognize that uh, NATO aggression against Serbia in 1999 could not be justified uh, uh, and that that responsibility of NATO leaders uh, uh, could not be uh, diminished by no explanation and no excuse. I really want to thank you for uh, your time and uh, for your uh, perspective on this. Yeah, thank you very much. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. James Bissett was Canada's ambassador to Yugoslavia from 1990 until 1992, with responsibility for Albania and Bulgaria. He was an outspoken critic of NATO's assault on Yugoslavia in 1999. He joins us now to discuss his thoughts on this 20th anniversary of the start of that conflict. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Bissett. I'm very happy to be with you. How dangerous a precedent was set with that NATO assault 20 years ago? Well, I think it was an extremely dangerous precedent, quite frankly. And I think it's one that's going to haunt, uh, uh, haunt us for a very long time. I consider it a historical turning point, actually because it was the first time since the end of the Second World War that uh, democratic countries, that is to say uh, NATO uh, and um, its membership, uh, used violence to uh, allegedly put down a humanitarian uh, crisis, which in fact did not exist. Uh, what, What was happening in Kosovo, which by the way had a great deal of autonomy under the Yugoslav uh, government, uh, it it had become a kind of a focal point uh, of interest for the Americans, and they decided that, uh, as they were responsible in many ways, along with the Germans, of breaking up Yugoslavia into its seven separate parts, uh, they also wanted uh, Kosovo to break away from Yugoslavia, and they did that uh, uh, in the name of humanitarian intervention, but in fact... They'd been plotting it for a very long time. Uh, During the Dayton Accords, uh, the discussions that took place to end the Bosnian fighting, uh, uh, during the discussions there, the Americans wanted Kosovo to be included in the discussions. Uh, In addition to that, they wanted to put uh, some 20,000 NATO troops in Serbia properly. Milosevic, who was representing the uh, Bosnian Serbs in Dayton refused on both accounts, but it was five years or so later, in 1999, uh, that uh, the so-called Rambouillet uh, agreement was uh, forced upon the Serbs, 
when Milosevic again refused to uh, deal with the problems in Kosovo, uh, they, uh, they bombed him. Uh, the humanitarian intervention, so-called, uh, resulted in the fact that the Albanians in Kosovo, who were armed and trained, many of them, the Kosovo Liberation Army, it was called, uh, went back into Kosovo after their training in Albania and in Turkey and began to assassinate Serbian mayors, Serbian policemen or security forces, and, ca and caused uh, an armed uprising. Uh, naturally, Serbia... Uh, and Milosevic decided they had to put that armed rebellion down, and they intervened militarily with their security forces. And we had, a, in effect, a small civil war. I say small because in the f five or ten years of unrest in Kosovo and the fighting that eventually erupted, only about 2,000 casualties took place. There were more people displaced, but a lot of them were displaced by the fighting that was going on, not by ethnic cleansing. It, <clears throat> A very minor sort of armed rebellion. Uh, mm -hmm. It was being put down ruthlessly, I, I admit that, but the fact of the matter is they were fighting ruthless people. So, I mean, on the basis of that very small uh, eruption, while in, in other parts of Africa and Sierra Leone and other parts of the world, there were much larger conflicts going on. But they used that as an excuse to essentially take Kosovo away from Serbia and to neutralize Serbia for geopo geopolitical reasons, basically. Yeah, and then speak? after, uh, we have the American Secretary of Defense, Cohen, saying that there are over, uh, you know, uh, 200,000 young Albanian men missing uh, in Kosovo. We have Madeleine Albright speaking out. Uh, the whole of the Western media were used to demonize uh, Milosevic, calling him the butchers of the Balkans, and exaggerating by far what was going on in Kosovo. Yeah, All and of as this you point justify out... Uh, this yeah. bombing by NATO. And why I say it's a terrible precedent and a historical turning point is that because uh, it was the first time that uh, NATO violated its own Article One of the treaty. And I'm an old Cold War warrior, and I was very proud of NATO during the Cold War. But the Article One of the NATO treaty said, in effect, that NATO would never use force or threaten to use force in the resolution of international disputes and would always act in accordance with the United Nations Charter. Uh, that, all of that principle was violated by the bombing of, of Serbia in 1999. Well, and it, it, a dreadful precedent. The UN Security Council has established the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia uh, through Resolution 827 uh, in 1993. Can you point to some of the flaws and irregularities in the way the ICTY uh, arrived at their conclusions uh, about the uh, war crimes in Yugoslavia? Well, look, the, uh, the tribunal, the Hague Tribunal, uh, was set up by the Americans. It was... Uh, uh, squeezed through the Security Council under, I think, false pretenses, pretensions. And uh, it was not only financed by the Americans, it was staffed by the Americans. They provided the money for the jail in The Hague to keep these war criminals in. They bought the, war, the judges and the lawyers there. I mean, it was a complete travesty of justice. And I think it, it should be the subject of study by all law schools as how uh, the major democratic countries of the world would, would create a court 
that was much worse in many ways of a kangaroo court. Almost all of the people brought before the court primarily were Serbs. Uh, the trial of Milosevic that dragged on and on became an embarrassment to the court because Milosevic destroyed every one of the witnesses brought forward before him. Uh, he was eventually, uh, some say, murdered in, in uh, the Hague because he, he was not really able to be found. They wouldn't be, have been able to find him guilty, although they would have found him guilty because everyone that comes before them are found guilty if they were served. Uh, it was a, a complete travesty. And it was set up uh, in conjunction with the concept that, uh, you know, humanitarian intervention, the responsibility to protect, that was used by the Americans primarily uh, in Yugoslavia and certainly with the setting up of the court. But it, it was a setting a pattern uh, uh, which has been following ever since then. Yugoslavia was the first country that was targeted to be basically destroyed because it, it, for geopolitical reasons, the Americans did not like the idea that Serbia was friendly with Russia, was in a geographical important part of the Balkans, and had to be brought down. Uh, that was the beginnings of the breakup of Yugoslavia, but it continued with that. And, and they were determined to get uh, Kosovo, uh, uh, partly because it, it was a, a country that they would create and would have as, as a subject person entity to do whatever they wanted it to do. It's not by accident the first largest military base built uh, in the world after by the United States after uh, the Vietnam War was uh, Camp Bonsteel in, in Kosovo. Uh, and it was occupied in violation of the UN resolution that settled the Kosovo-Serb conflict, Resolution 1244, which re- reinforced the sovereignty of Serbia over Kosovo. That was totally, totally neglected or just tossed aside. Uh, so, I mean, the court was also set up because the pattern that followed and was successful in Yugoslavia has followed through there. We've, we've had the cases of uh, uh, Libya, of Iraq, uh, of Ukraine more recently. And the pattern is that uh, if they want to get rid or get... Uh, have interest in a country that is important to them geopolitically, uh, they target the leader. First, you destabilize the country, you stop giving them international loans, you ban them from the World Bank, you hurt the economy so that people are unhappy and discontented, you destabilize it, set up NGOs in the country to agitate for more, a change in the ruler, you bribe opposition parties, media, to demonize the leader and the political power that you want to uh, dispose of. That, that's the first stage of it. Uh, and and it's, it's happening all the time, and, uh, and it still is happening, I'm afraid, today. Speaking so of... That's why it's historically important to understand what happened in, in Serbia. Kosovo declared its independence in 2008. Could you speak a little bit more about Kosovo today and, and, and the role that it's playing geopolitically? Yeah, well, Kosovo is... is uh, a failed state, basically. Uh, the KLA, who, that was the Kosovo Liberation Army, uh, was composed of uh, the leadership of, of, of criminals who were engaged uh, intimately in the heroin drug trafficking into Western Europe. Uh, they had committed many atrocities, including using Serbian prisoners uh, for uh, organ transplants on live prisoners 
making money by shipping those organs into Turkey and elsewhere. Uh, they're a bunch of criminals, and they're backed by uh, what I call other criminals, such as Wesley Clark and Madeleine Albright and, and uh, Holbrook. These people that were running the U.S. operation in, in the war against Kosovo, in my view, are, are clearly criminal. Indeed, Madeleine Albright and Wesley Clark now own property in Kosovo. There's a statue, a giant statue of Clinton in, in the main square in Pristina in Kosovo. And these gangsters... Uh, you know, are treated as though they're uh, honorable leaders of a democratic country, anything but. It's in a total mess economically, uh, and it's a dangerous uh, sore, really, in, in, uh, in terms of the relationship with Serbia. Uh, these people, as soon as uh, NATO took over uh, uh, Kosovo, when they came back into Kosovo, they began to murder and kill Serbs uh, and destroy Orthodox churches. And that went on for a very long time under the watchful eyes of NATO, who stood by and observed this without doing anything about it. We now have some eyewitness Italian and Portuguese military men who were there at a senior level who now admit that uh, this was going on, and they were told not to do anything about it. So, I mean, this is a criminal organization in charge of Kosovo, but it's geopolitically important for, uh, for the Americans because they have this major base there, and it... it it's not by accident that in March of 1999, on the 50th anniversary of NATO, Clinton invited all the NATO leaders to Washington with their wives. And during that 50th birthday party, he announced that NATO now had a new role to play internationally. And that new role would be that NATO would be able to intervene militarily whenever and wherever, basically, the Americans decided to do so. I mean, it's... it's really dangerous, and, and it's so disappointing that, uh, for, for instance, Canada goes along with this, uh, you know, and so does the European countries. Going back to your, your question about the Declaration of Independence, that in itself was, was completely in violation of international law. You can't just simply announce independence. Uh, it won't be, it's not acceptable under international law. You know, you have to have reasons for doing so. You have to be a suppressed minority. You have to be being uh, recognized uh, border and so forth. None of that applied to Kosovo. It was an illegal uh, uh, announcement. Uh, the United States basically said to Kosovo, to the KLA leaders, announce independence, we will support you, we will recognize you immediately. And as you pointed out, uh, I don't know, 190-some countries of NATO, but not all have, have uh, recognized Kosovo. We go through the motions of pretending that Kosovo is an independent, democratic country. It is not. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Well, if, I, if I've talked too long and too heatedly, it's because I feel it very strongly, and I think it's, as I said, it's, it's a historical turning point, and we've got to get back somehow to following international rules which uh, the Americans just push aside when they want to, and we humbly follow. The media is at fault here, too. Uh, people don't realize that, that uh, uh, the uh, Associated Press, the Reuters, and an agent in France, Agence France, control the media, control every, almost everything that the democratic countries uh, hear. And that, that, I think, is one of the major reasons that uh, we just go along with things uh, quietly and assume that everything we read in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Globe and Mail is, is the truth. 
It may be half truth, it may be the full truth, but it's got a slant on it, which is a very pro-American, pro-NATO, pro-anti-Russian news bulletins every day. And I think that's extremely dangerous. We don't have a free press. Yeah, and an excellent argument for uh, supporting independent media as well. Absolutely. James Bissett, thank you so much. You're welcome, sir. We've been joined by James Bissett, former ambassador to Yugoslavia. Uh, he joined us from Ottawa. A former professional soldier, Scott Taylor, has been editor and publisher of the Canadian military magazine Esprit de Corps since 1988. He's the author of several books over the course of his career, including Diary of an Uncivil War, The Violent Aftermath of the Kosovo Conflict from 2002. He spent time in Yugoslavia during and after the 1999 conflict. He joins us now from Ottawa. Scott Taylor, the popular depiction at the time of the uh, NATO uh, assault uh, was that the Serbs were the bad guys and the Kosovar Albanians were the victims of ethnic cleansing. Um, From what you recall of your time there, what did you witness on the ground? Well, I think, I mean, just going into that conflict, uh, it had been the, the prior breakup of Yugoslavia, so that the uh, fighting and, and ethnic cleansing took place in Croatia and then in, in Bosnia. And I'd covered that extensively because Canadian soldiers were deployed very quickly into that, as one of our commanders was uh, General Louis McKenzie. He was on the ground in Sarajevo. And uh, a chap who became a good friend of mine later was the ambassador, uh, James Bissett. He was in Belgrade at the time. So from different perspectives, you had the diplomat on the ground, and you had the general who was seeing things from a much more strategic point of view, and then for myself on the ground going through and reporting on the soldiers' stories. We had never bought into the narrative that the Serbs were the, the only bad guy, but they had become demonized I mean, in terms of the media coverage from those conflicts. Uh, they didn't go hire PR firms. They uh, kept thinking, you know, typical Serbian fashion, that it'll all come out, the truth will all come out in the end. I don't, I don't need a lawyer in court. I'm innocent. So... Um, it didn't work out that way. So it, by the time it came to 1999, it was very easy for the Serbs to be demonized into that role, and it was just like one more one more chapter. And people based a lot of that on the ignorance that we have here, I mean, that in the most general sense of, of geography and, and the history of Yugoslavia, because after the um, Second World War, places like Serbia that, you know, ceased to exist. It became part of this bigger entity. And as students, we only ever learned it as a, as a single country with a single capital. We didn't know about the six independent republics, individual republics, and the histories that they had, etc. So, you know, here people are listening to this thinking, well, you know, there's Serbs fighting in Croatia, there's Serbs fighting in Bosnia, now there's Serbs fighting in Kosovo. Um, like, why can't those Serbs just stay home and, and, you know, mind their own business kind of thing, right? So it was very easy to, to, to make this, this sort of mark. And there had been this ongoing... Um, conflict. In fact, most of the break of Yugoslavia started in Kosovo. It sort of came full circle by the time it got to 1999. And it had been raging in 1998. Nobody really cared. And of course, at that time, the Uchika, the KLA, Kosovo Liberation Army, were uh, seen as a terrorist organization. Uh, they were listed as one. And then that, that all changed as the U.S. and other players began to, to make a push. Uh, and as that reversal happened. So, I mean, I, I was going into the, the coverage of the conflict uh, taking it with a grain of salt. When we first started bombing, and Canada was a big participant in that, bombing Serbia and Kosovo, um, I was one of the outspoken critics, so was 
Ambassador Bissett, and so was General McKenzie. So I was thinking, well, if the general and the diplomat and the reporter who were on the ground all had you know, questions about what, was, what they were seeing, who exactly was the Canadian government listening to? Can you speak more about what, what was done to suppress independent media reporting during the conflict? Well, I mean, I'm reporting from Belgrade, when I finally got in, I spent the last, I think it was 28 of the 76 days in Belgrade and then into Kosovo um, as one of the few reporters who was accredited to get in there, one of the few from Canada <coughs> that spent those four weeks in there. And at that time, the, the air bombardment was, was uh, at its at zenith. So it was interesting. Um, but again, I, when I arrived, I thought I was going to see a smoking hole, you know, figure all these bombing, days and days of bombing that must be near the end. But... It was still quite a uh, vibrant city, Belgrade, and there was things going on, which, uh, I mean, you, you had to see it and realize it, I mean, and, and know that there was a deception happening at, at various different levels. Um, one of the clearest examples was that whenever these main Serbian buildings got hit, like the defense ministry or the foreign ministry, there was no secondary fires. They didn't burn through the night like you saw during the, the London Blitz in, in World War II. And it was because they'd been previously emptied out. They they had been given the target list. So, I mean, it's kind of an odd thing in war to, to give your enemy the list in advance of what you're going to hit and then hit it. And then the one example, exception to that was the night that they hit the Chinese embassy because that thing burned all night. They didn't give them a chance to clear out. So you could see where the things were planned, where this was meant to go through. So being on the ground, I had a different perspective. But to get messages out, um, a lot of my colleagues, my European colleagues, they they had knocked out the satellite. So for them to feed TV uh, footage and that kind of thing was almost impossible. Um, I had a system of sending faxes um, back from, from uh, I mean, we'd go wherever we could. I had an excellent assistant. He wasn't a professional fixer at all. His dad was a computer genius, and we were able to get to places where there was power, send stories out you know, into the night, and then uh, we'd circulate them from my office around wherever we could in Canada because I was being serial or uh, syndicated at that time. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get a fair amount of stuff out, and I was one of the only voices that was coming out from uh, from Canadian media. But the rest, of course, I mean, as I, only when I got home there, I realized I was being swamped by the fact that there was all the other angles, be it NATO, be it uh, NDHQ giving a press conference, be it politicians making statements, be it um, you know the various other heads of state that were in, in this thing. So my sole Serbian perspective was pretty much, uh, it was there, but it was buried by the... Uh, avalanche of other voices. Mm. Now, you uh, were uh, you, you left uh, Kosovo with uh, several with uh, Serbs as, as I if I recall. Uh, could you maybe tell a little bit about uh, how what that experience was like in terms so, of the... Yeah, I, I got in with the they, they let the journalists in just before um, the Russians came in. It was an unexpected move. So they they let us into Pristina the the, the um, UN Resolution 1244 had been signed, and that was to be this. The Serbs were to withdraw their um, artillery, their anti-aircraft artillery, and then the bombing was to stop, and then the NATO troops were to come in on the ground. But unexpectedly, this small contingent of Russians came through, and everyone thought World War III was about to erupt, and we were at ground zero. So that was interesting times. I mean, the, the Serbs that were in Pristina were welcoming the, the columns of Russian tanks like as if they were liberators. It was a, quite an emotional moment. And then once... I mean, the, the the bulk of the Serbian armor and artillery was pulling out, um, and the NATO rolled in, and then suddenly the, the streets were filled with, like, there was still a, a large number of Albanians that had lived 
in, in Pristina throughout the entire the duration. They appeared on the streets, and as the Serbian civilians were withdrawing, I, I, I went out on a bus with them, and there was a gauntlet uh, that they had to run, and the Albanians would stone the buses, or they would throw uh, like four-by-fours under the tires to try to disable the cars, and if they could, they would drag the occupants out and beat them. And this was done while British soldiers lined the road, um, supposedly to protect the Serbian civilians, but they did nothing to intervene. Uh, we had windows on our bus uh, smashed with rocks as we drove through. I was on a crowded bus coming out. It was terrifying. Um, but the fact that we would have been so outraged that Serbs had you know, sort of supervised this exodus of Albanians when they were originally fleeing, and then for our soldiers to be there supervising this on the way out, um, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, and it was just to see it. Like that, these were civilians. There were little kids on the bus. It was old ladies. I mean, and the fact that we were being terrorized under the, the watchful eye of, of British soldiers that were standing there doing nothing it was, as a former NATO soldier, it was very, uh, very disappointing. Do you have uh, any insights into uh, what this independent Kosovo was like? Did it do much to ameliorate the inter-ethnic tensions between Serbs and Albanians? Did they get worse? Well, I mean, instantly after the 1999 uh, fighting, I mean, there was like two, like two sort of main pockets and several smaller ones of, of Serbs left in enclaves, uh, certainly in the north in Mitrovica, um, that they kept and they, and that was sort of a natural division which was protected by the, the occupying NATO forces, and to this day it remains the case that the Serbs are in um, round-the-clock protected enclaves. That that's not much of a life for these guys. So it was interesting, but I mean, other than NATO deployed all kinds of troops in there, of course, and there's still, I think it's uh, EU has now got the, the responsibility for it, or OSCE or whoever's got it, but they have to remain there. So it's an interesting you know, claim for, for independence. But the, there was never a, a Kosovar identity. The Albanians always fought under the Albanian flag, the, the black double-headed eagle and the red flag. I mean, it's this thinly veiled facade of supposedly it's now an independent state, but it's actually just a, as far as the people there are concerned, I mean, it's, it's a, a part of greater Albania, and it, it uh, de facto is. So it's interesting, but of course they couldn't just, quote, redraw the map of Europe. They had to do it phase by phase. And, I mean, if you want to compare things to the recent issues with the Crimea and the Russian annexation of the Crimea, there was no referendum in Kosovo. The Serbs there were not allowed to vote. It was just this unilateral declaration of independence. And, you know, the UN uh, Resolution 1244 stipulated that this was still um, sovereign Serbian territory. It was an autonomous region of, of Serbia. That was the deal. That's what the Serbs signed. That's why they held on for 78 days, was to force that change. So basically, by, by accepting this and the change, it meant that, that whatever agreement NATO makes, it's not worth the paper it's printed on because they're just going to do what they want anyway. And again, I mean, as an example, as soon as the Americans um, got in there, they began building Camp Bonsteel, which is one of the biggest bases that they have, and it's in the middle of the Balkans now, which they've never had before. And it has now been, been turned into something which is considered to be Cantonimo Bay, Europe. Um, they round up undesirables from wherever they can get them, and then they bring them there. Um, there's all kinds of Human Rights Watch uh, you know, sort of allegations about what goes on in, in Camp Bonsteel. But there's no there's no oversight from you know this independent Kosovo government or anybody else. It's an American base. It's basically American soil in the middle of uh, the Balkans. So you know you talk about 
Putin, and he he built the the bridge across the Kerch Straits, and he has been chastised for that because he didn't seek permission from the Ukrainian government and its Ukrainian territory, according to the world. Well, the Americans never sought permission from the Belgrade government to build their airbase, or because they never would have got it. So, uh, you know, it's 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 the, the hypocrisy of, of the, and the finger pointing that goes on from issues that happened then to what's happening today. Uh, it's incredible. And um, just as finally, as, as a former soldier, do you, do you have any thoughts about the precedent that was set by this uh, war on Yugoslavia 20 years ago? Um, I mean, I was shocked that, that NATO would take up the cudgel and do what they did. I mean, there's all kinds of other stories, but we had eyewitnesses that were there that there was no actual you know, exodus until, until NATO started to bomb, and that's basically what, what triggered it. I don't think anybody expected the Serbs to hang on for 78 days, but they did. I mean, they're very tough and resilient people. I mean, there's no question about it. Probably the the most solidified they've been in, in a century, that they were all, you know, taking on the world and uh, were prepared to fight the ground fight, d- despite they were outnumbered by whatever they were. I mean, it, it was incredible, in ter- even in terms of technology. I mean, there was very few aircraft that were knocked out in that whole thing, but uh, they were still, to the very end, defiant. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, Disappointing, I got to say, as a soldier, that uh, NATO would have been used. What's supposed to be a collective defense uh, against an outside threat would have been used in, in an offensive manner over something which was an internal issue, an insurgency, if you will. Which, uh, I mean, the, 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 the true nature of the leadership of the Uchika, the KLA, the, the Hashim Tachis, the Agam Chekus, uh, Ramush Haradinais, these guys were all at some point indicted for, for crimes, either they were in Croatia or wherever they committed their war crimes. Some of them witnessed by Canadian soldiers, and we, uh, Agam Chekhov in particular, he was at the uh, the Medak pocket when the uh, Croatian army uh, massacred civilians in, in front of Canadians. And there was, you know, uh, a minor skirmish there between my old battalion and uh, Agam Chekhov, who at the time was an Albanian Kosovar serving in the Croatian army because he just hated Serbs, and they committed these atrocities, which then they subsequently in, in 1995, Chekhov was the artillery commander that shelled Kanin. And Andrew Leslie, who's now a member of Parliament, was the Canadian colonel. He was in Canin. He wanted this man brought to justice. He never was brought to justice. Instead, he was made the commander of the Uchika. And then Canada provided him with an Air Force. So no surprise. I mean, this this criminal trio, Cheku, Tachi, and Haradinai, um, are running a, a criminal state. Um, and people of, of Kosovo are suffering. I mean, it's one of the poorest regions in all of Europe. The crime rate is the highest in all of Europe. They have the highest ratio of prostitutes to civilians in anywhere in the world. Um, you know, it's, people are leaving. I mean, even though they're independent, they're they're, they're away from the, the yoke of the Serbian oppression, as they say. Um, they're still leaving in droves. I mean, so what did we actually accomplish in terms of a success story? Very sad story. Um, and Scott Taylor, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing your perspectives with our audience. Hey, my pleasure. Been speaking with Scott Taylor. He is the publisher and editor of. Esprit de Corps magazine. Global Research has an extensive archive of in-depth reports on Yugoslavia, Kosovo, and the NATO war. You can find it by visiting globalresearch.ca. Scroll down the left side of the page for in-depth reports and check out the entry under the heading, The Balkans. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.